0: Last week was great. I, I've, uh, I've been celebrating and rejoicing in my heart a lot. Last week, we had um, between the two services and the kids, we had 154 gathered with us last Sunday, which is great. Um, we had 17 people raise their hands between the two services as they want to go from death to life. So, <laughs> we are actively working on uh, creating a resource. For that purpose, that that those that you brought with you last week who, who made that prayer, made that decision, um, that, that we want to resource you with the tools that you need to now be able to walk alongside them in this new journey as they understand what it means to be a son or a daughter of the King. We want to help you and facilitate that as much as we can. So uh, working literally feverishly on that to try to have that ready here in a few short weeks and we'll get that out and that'll be a good opportunity for you to follow up again on uh, on what took place there with with your friends who came to Easter. So um, it has been a great celebration. But I also know uh, because I've heard I've heard the remarks and I've heard some of the things going on that that when God moves, Satan will counter, and that uh, Satan does not want us to be excited and to be passionate about what God is doing here. And so. Um, he will do things because he is the enemy of God. He wants to defeat God. Of course, he cannot defeat God. He has no power other than the power that God has given him, and so um, he's within the reins of whatever God says he can and cannot do. But he wants, to, he wants to discourage us. He wants to distract us. He wants to do things that will get us off course as a church when it comes to celebrating this newness of life. But um, What I see happening is that we're already victorious in Christ, and so there's no need for us to even give that any moment or any thought or any concern or any worry. We just need to continue to live in victory. And as as these things come up, as they will, we can promise they will because that's what the Bible teaches. There will be problems and troubles in this life. But what we know as a result of God's word is that we already have, we presently have victory over those things. So even If all hell comes against us, we are literally victorious in Christ. And so, I just want to encourage you this morning as you know as as Easter comes, we spend a lot of effort and energy building up to, to Easter because it's the, the biggest moment of our faith. It's very important that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead, and there is evidence for that. We build up to that for a reason, and it's easy the week after Easter to, to kind of get discouraged and kind of fall back into old habits and routines, but we need to continue to lean into Christ and lean into that relationship with God and let God speak directly to us as a result of the truth that He has revealed to us through His Son. And so, so don't, don't let yourselves, don't let myself, this would have been one of the things, don't let myself fall into any of those old habits and traps that we fall into. You know, we have, a, we have a great experience with Christ and then we just kinda go back to our life. That is not God's design for us. He wants to radically alter the way we live our lives, that we don't live them for ourselves, but we live them for, for His glory. And that brings us to what we're talking about this morning, and we're talking about Micah 6.8. We've, we've talked about this many times over the years. You can go to our website, 6.8church.com, and you will find many sermons you will find series based on Micah 6.8 because we have talked about it at great length. But, but we wanted to remind us what, why we're doing what we're doing. Remind us why we're doing the 6.8 experience. Remind us why we are the church that we are. And I think there is a lot of great information we can learn from Micah 6.8. So today we're going to be talking about doing justice. And so we'll look into our verse, obviously, and I've got some other verses for you that will be up on the screen. But I want to ask... Have you ever looked at a situation and just said, that's not right? I think we probably all have, right? I mean, we all look at situations and we say, that's not right. For instance, one of the ones that happens to me on a fairly regular basis is when I'm driving on the freeway and there's somebody going slow in the passing lane. I look at that and I say, that's not right. And I know that seems petty, I know it seems small, but it actually moves us in the direction that we need to go this morning because it is actually not right to not pass if you're in the, in the far left lane on the freeway. Does everyone know that? If you don't know that, I wanna do a little bit of, of motor, motor vehicle safety education this morning. The right lane, there's three lanes, right, on I-5, right? The right lane, I wanna clarify, is for people who are not willing to go the speed limit. So if you're not going to go 70 miles an hour, that far right lane is for you. That's where all the trucks are. That's where you ought to be. Now the middle lane is for those people that want to go a little bit faster but they're not quite willing to go as fast as some of the rest of us are, right? So so 75, let's say you're going to go 75, but that's the max. That's the middle lane. That's what you do in the middle lane, right? And the far left left lane is for people who actually want to get home, right? That's what the far left lane is for. It's it's not for people. This is what I see happening more and more as I'm driving, because I drive from here to Woodland every day to get off at our exit to go home. And what I see happen is people get in that far left lane, and they set the cruise control at 70 or 71 or 72 miles an hour and they've got their phone up there and they just zone out because they're driving for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes and they're like, if I stay in the left lane, I don't have to do anything. I can just sit here and not have to worry about having to pass people. But then you get the people that come up behind you that uh, do things, I don't, I don't do this often sometimes, flash their lights and, I, and, and I'm doing this and see, I've actually come to the conclusion about a deficiency in our vehicles. We need more than the one horn, right? I mean, this, this would come in handy when we're sitting at a stoplight. You know, you've got the one horn, the one horn is for emergencies, and you want it to be loud and annoying so that everyone hears it. Makes perfect sense, but, but when you're sitting at a stoplight and the person in front of you is texting, and they haven't noticed that the light has turned green, you don't necessarily wanna lay on the horn of anger, right? So I think we need at least three different horns, like we have red, yellow, and green lights. We need, we need a green horn, it's just like a little happy horn, like you push it and it's like, Do-do-do-do-do. Just something really light and fun, you know, and it could be whatever you want. We could, we could come up, we could put it to a pole and just see which one is the happiest little horn you could get, and then that's the one that you use when you just need somebody to go at, at the red light. Now, now you've got the yellow horn, and what the yellow horn is for is if somebody is in the passing lane. It's like, you're not really angry, but you just want them to know that there are, there's five miles of traffic behind them because they're refusing to get out of the passing lane, and they would make a whole lot of people happy if they got out of the the passing lane, moved over into the center lane, right? And so, so we've got the yellow horn, and it's just, it's, a not, it's not happy, but it's also not angry, right? And I don't really know what that sounds like, so we could, we could kind of, you know, do some scientific research and come up with that. And then the angry horn is if somebody is going to pull into you, you know, if you're about to die, that kind of a thing. So, but driving in the passing lane is something that actually, because by the law of the land and the Bible teaches us. I'm on my soapbox this morning, by the way, just for fun. This is my my issue. The Bible teaches us that we're supposed to abide by the law of the lands as long as it doesn't morally conflict with what God has told us to do. That's what the Bible teaches. And so when when the law says you're you're supposed to keep right, except to pass, it's actually unlawful and unjust to be in the passing lane, right? See, I'm a pastor. I can rationalize and moralize all all of my shortcomings. So, um, but that is, that is actually a, a way to think about what is right, doing what is right, looking at a situation and seeing what is right. A lot of Christians struggle with the idea of paying taxes, but, but we can go to the life of Jesus and see that doing what is right, doing the just thing, is to pay taxes, because he does not say to not pay our taxes. In fact, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. That was his answer to it. By the way, what is God's? You know, he says the, the, the coin, you know, whose image is on the coin and it's Caesar's, right? And he, so he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What has God's image on it? That's us. And so we are supposed to be giving our lives to God. That's the, I think that's a, an emphasis of what he was saying there in that passage. And so, so things like that, those are just. So it is actually unjust to not pay taxes. I know that nobody wanted to hear that message this morning. That's not the encouraging word you were hoping for, but that is the truth of what God says. But there are a lot of other things throughout scripture that are just, that are right, that we're supposed to be doing that I think have probably gotten neglected by a lot of churches. I know because I've been at a lot of churches and a lot of churches haven't really spent a lot of energy on these things. And that's one of the things that motivated us as a church to become 6A Church, is that we wanted to be the kind of church that did what the Bible said we're supposed to do. And there are a lot of people groups in Scripture that we are supposed to be passionate about helping, and we're going to cover those this morning. But I want to say this, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit of detail before we get into things. We cannot go to culture, we cannot go to the government We cannot go to to the organizations that rule in our world right now and expect to find an answer for what is right. That is not the starting point for truth for us as followers of Jesus Christ. A lot of us have, have, because I follow a lot of us on Facebook, we have posted great amounts of material on things that we think are right and wrong. But when I when I look at it, when I think about it, I think, is that is that the issue that we want to be known for as a church? Is that is it taking a stance on this issue or that issue what we really want to be known for as a church? Now I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna critique all of your Facebook, I'm not gonna start you know, making comments, hey, are you sure you want to take a stand for this or that? Don't worry about that. Um, but but I do want us to think about the issues we're willing to take a stand for, and at the same time the issues we won't take a stand for. Why have we decided it's okay to take a stand for this, but not for that? Why have we decided it's okay to take a stand for for what culture says is an important social justice issue right now, and not take a stand for what God says is an eternal justice issue, something that has its basis in God's truth, not man's truth? So as we go through our time this morning, I want to think about justice and I I challenge all of us, myself included, this has challenged me as I've studied and prepared for this week because there are some things that that I'm not doing correctly when it comes to doing justice. But I also want you to know before we get into things that, that if God confronts us with something, he's doing it because he loves us. He's doing it because He knows what is best for us. He knows what is best not only for you, but how he wants to use you to love and care for the other children he has in this world. And so if he's making a confrontation to our minds and to our hearts that we're not living like he wants us to live, the point is not for us to get condemned, which is what we're going to talk about too, but the point is to change so that we can actually know and understand what it means to be in a relationship with the king in a better way. So I just ask, as we go through this morning, I'm not going to talk about, don't worry, I know probably everyone is is tense, because I'm not going to talk about any specific social justice issues uh, that are popular today. We'll leave that to you. But I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about these issues. If you will, go with me to Matthew chapter 23. Now, While you're turning there, I want to remind you of our verse as a church. It's Micah 6.8. That's where our name comes from, 6.8 Church, and it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. So there's the first part. There's There's the precursor to what God is about to say. God has shown us what is good. The eternal God has shown us mortals what is good, right? That, that's what God's word teaches. And so when you see a phrase like that, the actual word there for man is mortal. That's, that's how it's actually uh, written, and we use the word man because it's easier to understand, but it's that he has shown you mere mortal, you might say. Mere mortals, God has shown you. Mere mortals, the eternal God has shown you what is good. So what is good is going to follow. So what is good? Well, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And we're gonna spend the next three weeks as a church looking at those three issues. Doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Now, it is impossible for me to break them up into three separate entities because they are all connected. They all work together and how we do each of them, so there will be some overlap, but we're gonna spend most of our time today talking about doing justice. Matthew chapter 23, this is Jesus, and he's, he's, he's saying some woes, woe to you. And this is one of the ones that, that I wanted to talk about. For one, we have something to celebrate as we talk about this, but then we can learn quite a bit. Jesus says, woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees. Now look at that. Experts in the law, they're experts in God's law, experts in the law that was given in the Old Testament to Moses, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. These are experts in the law and the Pharisees who are like the religious police and they're responsible for holding people accountable to the law. So Jesus says, Woe to you, experts in the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet swallow a camel. I love Jesus' illustration, it's such a visual illustration. You, you, you imagine yourself taking a drink of something and, and you've got a drink, I don't know if you've ever spent much time out, outside, but especially in the Midwest where I came from, you couldn't really leave drinks uncovered because if you did, you'd get bugs in them. You know, especially if, you, if it had sugar in it, you would get wasps in your drink. And then, of course, if you have a can of pop, which I know is evil in our day and age, but you know, for God forgive me, I drink Mountain Dew, but um, if you have a can of pop and a, a, a yellow jacket or a wasp goes in there, the whole thing is ruined, right? So, so you're pretty diligent about covering your drinks in the Midwest because you don't want to swallow a wasp. I think that's not going to go well if you swallow a wasp. I think that's a bad thing. And so so imagine you've got a bug floating in here, and so all you see, is so, so you strain it out, right? You, you pour it through a, a cloth or something to get it out, or you get it out with your fingers, which is kind of disgusting. And so you get it out, but you don't notice that there's a camel in there, and you... It goes down kind of hard, but you get it, right? I mean... It's quite a visual illustration that Jesus comes up with. It's like, you're going to get out the little tiny gnat, but you're going to miss the camel altogether. Well, what is the gnat that they're getting out, and what is the camel? What is Jesus referring to here in this passage? Look, he says, You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. That is, they were tithing, Giving a tenth is referred to as tithing. That's the church word for tithing. That's how we talk about it in the Old Testament. So they were, the experts in the law and the Pharisees, they were religious about giving a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. So, so anything, this, you know, imagine you've got your little herb garden growing in your house. And so they are so religious to the law that with their herb garden growing in the, in the windowsill of their house, that when, when one plant grows up and there's 10 leaves on that plant, they're gonna take one leaf off and tithe it to God. That's how religious-minded they are. And in fact, if you want to go read Isaiah chapter 58, you're going to get a whole picture of this, how God confronts this in his people in Israel, and how he talks about you're you're doing all of the religious duties, but you've missed a big part of what I've told you to do. So he says, you give a tenth of, of the spices in your window, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now notice here, he says, you should have done these things. So when he's talking about tithing mint and dill and cumin, he says, you should have done these things without neglecting the others. A lot of translations will phrase that a little bit differently. One of the translations will say, um, will say when it's talking about tithing, it says, and you should. As though Jesus was talking in conversation, tithing, you should tithe. That's, that's what, he's, what he's talking about. But there's more to it than that. Don't, don't just do the tithing. Don't just do the religious duty and think that you're good. It's because God, as we've talked about, wants to change and transform our hearts. And when our hearts are changed and transformed, it affects how we think about everyone and everything around us. But I wanted to stop and just, I want to encourage you, I want to celebrate you because um, our finance team has been giving me updates because we, we've talked about how throughout this year we want to just be more, more open with you on our financial situation. As we went through last year, we were, we were struggling a lot, things were really tight throughout a lot of last year, and we decided one of the best things we could do is just let you know where we stand. And we said early on this year that we need an average of $3,100 a week. Throughout the course of the year to meet the expenses of running our ministry here at the church, and we've been praying that God would continue to bring in families who just have a desire to tithe and be generous. You know, tithing is kind of for for the believer a baseline; it's the beginning point. You might not be there yet, so I'd encourage you to start somewhere. But um, if you're not if you're not at 10%, then start at 2%, and and just let God challenge you in that. But but we challenged and we talked about it, and over the last three months, we've had some of our best months, our highest weekly average, uh, maybe in the whole time that I've been here, with uh, I think $3,100 last month, $3,400 a week the month before that, and I think 32 dollars or something like that the month before that. So, so basically, ever since we've talked about it, everyone has responded and it's almost like, hey, we just didn't know what was going on, so tell us and, and we'll, we'll be faithful to that. So. I really wanted to encourage you in that. that. That has been an answer to a prayer that I've been praying for many years. Uh, it's, been, it's been something because funds have always been tight here. Things have always been stressed and strained. And we are still tight. Don't, don't hear me wrong. You know, we're making, we're, we're, we're in the black by a couple hundred bucks a month. So that's, that's a starting point. It's better than being in the red a couple hundred bucks a month. And, but I just wanted to pat you on the back and, and uh, and give yourself a chance to feel like you have succeeded in contributing to that. So thank you. But if we as a church stop there, I've been, I've been at several churches and some of them had a lot of money. They had, they had a lot of wealth in the church. But the lives of the people in the church didn't really reflect a life that has been changed by God's grace. And it's easy, I think, for us in today's culture to think, well, I threw some money at it, I'm good. I think this is kind of the American dilemma, right? We think we can be charitable and we're good. We can think we can be charitable and we're being gracious. But as we're going to discover throughout the course of our time this morning, giving money is not what God asks of us. It's part of it. It's part of of who we're supposed to be, is that God is in control of our finances, and that's one of the things we're supposed to talk about. Somebody sent in a text here. The driving lane and trucking turns is hammer, sandwich, and granny lanes. I like that. So like the fast lane is the hammer lane. Is that right? Was that you? Uh, and the middle lane is sandwich and then granny lanes? Yeah. That wasn't me. That didn't come from me. But if you're going to drive slow, you should be in the granny lane. That's all I have to say. But, um, Tithing and giving is a good thing, but it actually is a heart issue, and I want to uncover that just a little bit. Now, at a base level, doing justice, you can, you can maybe write this down as doing what's right. That's the simple way of thinking about it. It's looking at a situation, as we have talked, looking at a situation saying, What is the right thing to do in this situation? And then doing it. So, we've talked about how doing justice as God's people here at 68 Church, we want to be people who do and live what is right. We wanna live the right way, and we want to do the right things. So when there is a call for us to be involved, we need to be faithful and get involved. But this brings up the question that we just talked about, how do we know what the right thing is? If we're listening to the wrong voices, we're not going to know. In fact, Michael Sandel, who's a Harvard professor, he wrote a book called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? And in that book he says, the reason our society is so divided is because we can't agree on what justice is. The reason our society is so divided is because we can't agree on what justice is. You have the different political groups and the different movements and all the different groups that are moving in different ways and different directions, and they all have their own idea of what justice is, what the right thing is, and a lot of them conflict with other groups, and so no wonder there are revolts. The reason we're divided is because we don't understand what justice is. And everybody thinks they're on the right side of justice, but nobody can agree on what justice is. So if we're going to understand what the right thing to do is, we need to get back to a point where we're all on the same page and says, "This this is right. We can't allow political systems to decide what's right. We can't even allow churches to decide what is right. We must go right to the source of truth and discover what right is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to give a quick overview of what the Bible teaches is right. And to get an overview, we actually have to go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we learn that every human being is made in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 talks about that, how, how God made humans in his image, in our image. He says we created them. So we've said often around here that every human being is made in God's image and deserves to be, with, be treated with dignity and respect. For that reason alone. No other, no other conditions other than that every human being is made in God's image. There are no justifications outside of that. We cannot rationalize away the fact that every human being is made in God's image and deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Because of this, we're supposed to treat one another here in this building and the others outside of this building in a specific way. So these are the things then that we're supposed to be doing. This like what what Jesus was talking about here in Matthew chapter 23, says we're supposed to be doing certain things, but there are other things we've neglected. So, we're supposed to keep doing the things we're supposed to be doing while we add the things that we're not doing. So, we should start doing the things, I know this is a confusing sentence, but I wrote it down for you so you could write it down. Um, we We should start doing the things we're supposed to do while we continue to do the things we should do that we are already doing. That's a fun one, right? I mean, it's kind of fun. The syntax might be off, but I'm not a grammar student, so I don't care we should start doing the things we're supposed to do while we continue to do the things we should do that we're already doing. That's that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 23. The things you are doing that you're supposed to be doing, keep doing them. And while you keep doing them, start doing these other things. And the Bible also tells us that whoever knows what is good to do and doesn't do it is guilty of sin. So once we learn what the good is that we're supposed to do, We're supposed to do it, and if we don't do it, we're sinning by not doing it. So what then is biblical justice? I'm going to lay some groundwork here, and then we'll come to a close. Biblical justice means at least these three things. There are probably a lot more ways that biblical justice could be extrapolated throughout God's word and we could, we could do a great study on that and it would take us probably a lot of time. But we can at least learn these three things about what it means to do justice. Biblical justice looks like this. First, it means equal treatment. Equal treatment. I don't have that written for you. You might want to write that in your notes. Biblical justice is equal treatment. That means racial and social equity. It means there are no divisions in humanity as we have divided humanity. It does not exist from God's vantage point and God's perspective. So, so all human beings, as they exist, as they are created in God's image, deserve to be treated equally. Racial and social equity is a demand of justice in God's word. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22 says, There will be one regulation for you. Whether a foreigner or a native citizen, citizen, for I am the Lord your God. There will be one regulation for you, whether you're a foreigner or a native citizen, for I am the Lord your God. God is saying treat everyone the same. He's saying there's going to be one set of rules among God's chosen people, whether you're a foreigner or a native citizen, is all going to be the same set of rules. We're not going to have a separate set of rules for those who aren't native citizens. Exodus chapter 23, verse 1 through 9. God's going to give a lot of explanations of justice here. God says, you must not give a false report. That's unjust. Do not make common cause with the wicked to be a malicious witness. That's an important one for us to understand in this day and age. We're not supposed to just join the ranks of those who say something is just simply because it's the popular thing at the time. Then we become a malicious witness. We don't join the common cause just because it's common. We have to evaluate if it is the truth, if it is the right cause. You must not follow a crowd in doing evil things. So just because the masses are doing something that is evil does not mean we have God's approval to do what is evil. We cannot follow the crowd in doing evil things. In a lawsuit, you must not offer testimony that agrees with the crowd so as to pervert justice. So even though a crowd may be, may be chanting and saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, we do not join in with the chance of crucify him, when we know it is unjust, that that is a perversion of justice. And you must not show partiality to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, this is very pertinent to me, what's happened this week. If you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, you must by all means return it to him. One of our neighbor's bulls got out and uh we were we were responsible for the cows this week and I was standing and, and looking out the window and all of a sudden, the herd of cows literally just comes rushing, charging down the hill, which is very abnormal for cows. Cows don't do that, right? I mean, they just kind of saunter along and walk along. So when the cows are running at top speed, you know something is wrong. And so I start looking around and I can see in the neighbor's yard is a bull that is not a part of the herd of cows that we have. So I, as quickly as I could, put, you know, put on my shoes and my jacket and I go outside and my neighbor, who also happens to be my aunt and uncle's, she had gotten him to this and he came out into our yard, and as he comes out into our yard, I run, and I stare him in the face, and he's cornered, right, there's a fence behind him, and there's a fence to the right of him, and there's me, and he gives me that look for just a second in his eyes, like he's thinking about doing something. And I literally, I remembered this as I was standing there, so this will show you that God's truth actually comes to mind when you need it to, that God teaches us that as, as a human, I have dominion, as one of his creations, I have dominion over all animals on this, on this planet, right? That's what God teaches us. I haven't quite learned how to live that out when it comes to bears and lions, but when it comes to a bull, I just realized, okay, this bull cannot do anything to me unless God has given it permission, so I just kind of lowered my voice, and I just, when, I, when he was looking me in the eye like something was gonna happen, I just said, hey. And he just turned and went that way. <laughs> right, so I mean, so, so God's word is true. At least for that one moment in time, I had dominion over that bull. Now, I'm not going to test that out in different theories to just see how far that goes, but my aunt I yelled at her, open the gate, and she ran and opened the gate, and we ran the bull back into the neighbor's fence where it belonged. By God's definition, that is not only a good thing to do, it's a required thing that I should have done. If you see your enemies, ox or donkey, wandering off, now my neighbor is not my enemy, but you must by all means return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen under its load, you must not ignore him, but be sure to help him with it. Verse 6 You must not turn away justice for your poor people in their lawsuits. Keep your distance from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. This one is one that I think we need to talk about that we don't really pay much attention to. Verse 8 says, you must not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and subverts the words of the righteous. This might be even common practice in our day, especially when, when it comes to large corporations and government institutions. Bribes are pretty rampant. But God hates bribes, and you can do a study on bribes throughout the Bible that God hates bribes. Why do you think God hates bribes? Because it is not equitable, it is not equal treatment. The the, the socially uh, low income class doesn't have access to money to be able to bribe high officials. It's unjust. Verse 9 says, You must not oppress a foreigner since you know the life of a foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And in fact, what the Bible teaches us is that all of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ are foreigners here on this planet, that that our eternal home is with God. It is not here. And so, so we are awaiting our permanent home. So why would we oppress anyone? Why would we oppress anyone wherever they are So that's one biblical definition of justice is equal treatment. This one, this though might get a little bit tricky and I wanna do my best to explain it so please bear with me because it sounds like it contradicts the first point. The first point is equal treatment for all people. But the Bible will actually make a case that there should be preferential treatment. But the preferential treatment What the Bible tells us who the group of people are for for, that are supposed to receive preferential treatment are the vulnerable populations. These are the ones that are supposed to be objects of special concern. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth on behalf of those unable to speak. Open your mouth on behalf of those unable to speak for the legal rights of all the dying. Open your mouth, judge in righteousness, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. The poor and needy among us actually need some preferential treatment. They need advocates, right? That's what we're talking about here is advocacy. We're supposed to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, you will not find throughout Scripture commands that we should speak up for men. Why? Because throughout the biblical society, the men had all of the power in the society. But you will hear God say that we're supposed to speak up for widows, the one who was an outcast in the society, the poorest of the poor. You will hear God say, speak up for the orphans. To be a father to the fatherless, this is the truth that drives us to do fathers in the field as a church, that, that we're supposed to be advocates for those who cannot speak for themselves. they are supposed to give a voice to the voiceless. And this is kind of what I was talking about when it comes to charity versus justice. Token charity throws money at an issue where advocacy, where real justice becomes an advocate for those in these situations. So while we at least ought to treat everyone equally, for those who are, who are poor and neglected, orphans and widows, we're supposed to actually speak up for them because they can't speak for themselves. Equal treatment, preferential treatment, and then generosity. Generosity. Isaiah chapter 58, verse six through seven, I wanna read this for us. says, No, this is the kind of fast I want. I want you to remove the sinful chains, to tear away the ropes of the burdensome yoke, to set free the oppressed, and to break every burdensome yoke. I want you to share your food with the hungry and to provide shelter for the homeless, oppressed people. When you see someone naked, clothe him. Don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. You must actively help the hungry and feed the oppressed, then your light will dispel the darkness, and your darkness will be transformed into the noonday. You see, in Isaiah chapter 58, uh, God had prompted the prophet Isaiah to say these words, and at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 58, he starts with, "You're doing all of these religious duties that you're supposed to do, and yet your prayers are not being answered. Yet, yet you are un- undergoing these things, these trials, these judgments. Why? Because of this. Because you're not doing what you're supposed to. They were having because they aren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. They were having their servants work on the Sabbath so they could make a little more money. In God's eyes, that was unjust." Job, in uh, chapter 29 and verse 31, you get this, you get Job talking about his treasure, his accumulation of wealth, and he says, in essence, if I treated my gold, my money, and my bread as my own, that would be a sin to be judged. That if you read, through, read the story of Job, at the very beginning you see he was a very blessed man. He had thousands and thousands of animals that God had blessed him with. He had 10 kids that God had put into his life, had blessed him with, and yet he thinks of all of that treasure and more as we get to the end of his life because God replaced it in abundance. He thinks, if I treated my gold, my money, and my bread as my own, that would be a sin to be judged. We've talked about this at length, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but it's not our money, in fact, God has put us where we are. God has blessed us in this, and so he has entrusted us with his money. So when he tells us to be generous, he's just telling us to do with his money what he wants us to do with his money. We tend to think, I earned this. This is my income. This is my living that I have made. But we don't ever stop to think and realize that God chose where we should be born, when we should be be born, and who our parents should be. We think we've earned it, and yet God put us where we are, God gave us the resources that we have at our disposal, God put us in the family that we were put in, and he has blessed us with all of these things as a result. If we have something, it is a gift from God, even if we worked for it because God gave us the ability to work for it. In fact, if God chooses you and I to receive more, which by comparison to the rest of the world we have, received much more, then it's unjust for us not to share it with those who have been given less. Remember Jesus talking, we might say, well, I tithe, and that should be it, right? I tithe, I I do my good, good. We should do that, and we should continue to do that while we start to do the other things God has called us to do as his people. We should tithe, but what about the camel? Justice is doing what's right. Equal treatment, preferential treatment, and generosity. But the only way to do what is right is by knowing what the right thing is. I know I've said that already, but I want to repeat it. The only way to do what is right is by knowing what the right thing is. The only one who gets to decide what is right is God. God. All right, so if we think that we get to decide whether or not to swallow the camel, we're putting ourselves in God's position as the only righteous judge. If we think we get to choose between the gnat and the camel, we're putting ourselves in God's position as the righteous judge, and he is the only one that gets to make those decisions. If we think that we get to fight for the rights of one group but not the rights of another group, then we're making ourselves the only righteous judge. If we're going to fight for the group that's popular to fight for right now in the moment, the crowd that is getting the most attention, but not the others who are not getting the attention, that is not right. You've probably heard it said, but what's popular is not always right, and what's right is not always popular. In fact, I would say that in our age now more than ever, what's popular is rarely right, and what's right is rarely popular. As believers in Christ, as people who have been radically redeemed, we're going to get to that in just a minute and how this plays into all of that because it's very important that we understand the connection. As we have been radically redeemed, we we need to understand we cannot allow God's truth to be swayed by the opinion of the world. That's a a global truth we have to understand because God's truth will be swayed by the world if we allow it, but God wants us to understand his only truth. The only way to do that is for us to be in his word, reading and consuming it, to to allow it, God's word, to search our hearts and to allow God through his word and through the spirit to search us and know us and to reveal those things in our lives that are not how he wants them to be. That's never gonna come through popular vote. That's never gonna come through what is trending in social media. That's never gonna happen by what is popular in our culture. We have to know what is right, regardless of what is going on. So we have to ask ourselves, do you know what is right? If you were to come into a challenging situation, would you know how to respond? Is this the right thing to do, or is this the wrong thing to do? Not just my idea of right and wrong, but God's idea. By the way, do you know something that wasn't just? When someone who was perfectly innocent was executed on a cross. By the way, while we're talking about Jesus, let's look at his life. You want to know what justice looks like? Look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus identified with the poor and the oppressed. Jesus welcomed women into his circle. Do you know how radical that was for Jesus' day? Women were treated like lesser, like, like they were unequals in Jesus' day, and yet he welcomed them into his circle. In fact, our, our study that we've been going through, that we've taken a break from for the moment in Luke, a lot of Luke was likely informed by Mary a woman. Jesus identified with the poor and the oppressed. Look at how Jesus was born. He was born in a stable, and he slept his first nights in a feed trough. That doesn't sound like something that happens for a king. Look at how Jesus lived his life. You know, Jesus is, is issuing a challenge here in Luke chapter 9. He says, as they were, or this is Luke, as they were walking along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have dens, and the birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus had no home. Jesus said to another, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What God calls us to do, he will empower us to do, and we need to entrust our lives and our pursuit to that calling. And we cannot continue to to look back and, and think, well, but... Man, the crowds are getting kind of loud, Jesus. Did you hear what they said? It doesn't really agree with what we're talking about. Once you put your hand to the plow, once you take on the work of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, once you accept the call of Christ, we don't look back. We, we continue to look forward to Christ. We continue to look forward to the kingdom of God. As far as I can tell through my studies, the purple robe that he wore right before he went to the cross wasn't his. He was naked on the cross. He was ashamed. And he was even placed in a borrowed tomb. Jesus was not some wealthy entrepreneur who, who, had, you know, who just was a millionaire, was just had lots in terms of worldly wealth. He identified with the poor and the oppressed. And through his life, he set an example for all of us. I think we understand that statement, and I was wrestling with that, that that it's just kind of a trite statement. We, We think about that. Jesus set an example, right? I mean, what would Jesus do, you know? We, we, we think, oh, okay, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, Jesus was holy and he was humble. You know, we, that's good. But, but do we ever stop to think about what mercy and grace look like when it comes to the idea of being just? What would Jesus do in, in this situation where it comes to doing justice? Do we ask ourselves, do we stop and think, what is God asking me to do in this situation? So Jesus didn't deserve to die, and yet he laid down his life for the guilty, not for the innocent. In fact, if you can remember a phrase, you can write this one down. This would be the phrase for you to remember this morning. The one who deserved vindication put on condemnation, so that those who deserve condemnation could receive vindication. Jesus, the one who deserved vindication, who had done nothing wrong and and deserved someone to stand up in his defense and fight for him and make a case and plead a case that he was innocent, the one who deserved it the most because of his sinless life, willfully chose to put on condemnation, the condemnation of all of us, the whole world. And he did that for a reason, so that we, the ones who deserved condemnation, could receive vindication. Because we deserve to be condemned, and yet now Jesus stands at our defense. Jesus is our defender. That is how he is described throughout the New Testament now, that he is pleading our case before the Father. We deserved condemnation, but because of what Jesus did, we have vindication. We ought to be pursuing that same Way among the, those out in the world. Jeremiah chapter 22, we're getting close to the end. The Lord says, Do what is just and right. Deliver those who have been robbed from those who oppress them. Do not exploit or mistreat foreigners who live in your land, children who have no fathers, or widows. Do not kill innocent people in this land. We're not supposed to mistreat foreigners who live among us. We're not supposed to mistreat children who have no fathers, no parents. We're not supposed to mistreat widows. We're not supposed to kill innocent people. Doing justice isn't always easy. In fact, probably if we're doing it right, it's going to be difficult. A long time ago, I preached a message called Doing Justice Means Dropping the Justifications. If you want, you can go listen to that online. You can hear that this is something that I've struggled with now for quite a while. But as the Bible describes it, doing justice means dropping the justifications. People are made in God's image, period. We don't get to decide to do what is just or to not do what is just simply because of the sinful choices people have made. I know this is a hard one. This is a challenge for me. It is an ongoing challenge for me to this day, that it's hard for me because I want to make justifications for why I should not be doing justice with certain groups of people. I just want to be honest with you, I want to be real with you, this might make you think less of me, but I struggle, for instance, with with doing what is just for, for homeless who are addicted to drugs. We watched a news story this week and I almost brought the clip in to share it with you, but I decided not to do that, I didn't want to get too controversial this morning. But that's a hard one for me. They were talking in the news story about how in Philadelphia, they're, they're thinking about doing a, a safe, you know, safe, safe places for them to take drugs so that they can do it under the supervision of a nurse. The rational part of me thinks, are you kidding me? Really? And they interview some of the homeless who are wanting this and they say, yeah, we, you know, we, just, we just want a safe place where we can try out our product and, you know, and you know, we don't know where it's come from. We just want to make sure that it's not going to kill us. And, and the part of me in my brain screams out, it's illegal. It's against the law for you to do these things. Right? I mean, that's, that is how I have responded So then I decide, you know, well, they, they, they have to help themselves. They have to want to help themselves before I'm going to help them. God helps those who help themselves. What have I done in that situation? I have become the judge. I have decided that this person does not deserve God's mercy or God's grace. He does not deserve, she does not deserve anything. I have condemned. It's extremely challenging. The reason God has these explanations for how we're supposed to do justice is that kind of situation. Why? Because all of us made sinful choices that separated us from God, and yet God... Before we were even born, before we existed on this earth, thousands of years before we took our first breath, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die a radical death on the cross to provide a pathway for us to have redemption. I deserve to be condemned, and yet God decided to vindicate me. That means that that I should understand because of God's great mercy, because of God's rich love that he has poured out on me, that I should let that love then flow through me to those who are still living under condemnation because they also have a vindicator who wants to stand in the gap for them. And until they meet that person, my job is to introduce them to that person. God's redemption is is not safe. God's redemption is not easy and simple. God's redemption is exceptionally radical. And if we have been radically redeemed, our response to radical redemption must be radical. We can't just always do what's logical. We can't just always calculate what's gonna be the best move and, and do what makes logical sense. We sing songs about this on a regular basis, and I was going to talk about it, but I knew I wouldn't have time, and so we're going to save it for another day. But the, prodig- the prodigal son is a perfect example of God's justice and His radical redemption towards us. And that word prodigal, I've tried to say, I'm going to keep saying it, the word prodigal does not mean someone who has wandered. The word prodigal means spendthrift. That means this guy went off and spent all of his money. He's a spendthrift. And yet when you look at God, he is radical towards us in that same way. He spent the life of his son to provide for our salvation. God has done things that we would deem are reckless. But that is his love. And we say, this is, these are my arguments. You know, maybe, maybe you've never made these arguments. You're probably a better person than I am. But these are the arguments I would say. I say, well, aren't we supposed to be good stewards of God's resources? I mean, we've only got so much money. Should we really be throwing our money at this or at that? Well, that just shows my lack of faith, my lack of understanding of God's truth. Because if God is requiring something of us, he's going to provide it for us. Just like in Christ, the righteousness that God requires of us was provided by Christ. We talked about that last week on Easter. Through Christ, the righteous requirements that God have, has, or has, have, and will have of us were provided for us in Christ, so what God requires, God provides. Don't we think that when God wants to redeem those who are lost and under the, uh, under the bondage of sin, trapped and oppressed by sin, don't we think, don't we understand that God would provide what we need to rescue them from sin? Of course he will. And if God wants us to do this, he will let us know that he's going to provide for it. Well, but, but I mean, are we enabling people? This is my big argument. Do we really want to enable people by doing this? I mean, just by, you know, by providing, by providing money or by providing meals for people who are addicted to drugs, we're, we're just enabling them to continue on in this bad behavior, and that was a rationalization. That was the justification that I would make, but is it enabling if we really love mercy? It's not enabling if we love being compassionate. We're going to talk about that a lot next week, but compassion, love, Love mercy, we're supposed to love mercy, we're supposed to love being merciful. Merciful is being compassionate. Compassionate means walking with someone in their pain. If we are willing to walk with people in their pain, then we're not just enabling people, we're walking alongside them and showing Christ to them and trying to help them understand that there is a God who loves them in this radical way. That's not enabling the reason we see it as enabling is because we don't want to do the compassion, we just want to throw money at it. We don't need more charity. We need more mercy. In fact, what we're going to learn next week is that justice without mercy is unjust. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see... What sort of love, what kind of love, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children, and indeed we are. What kind of radical love has been given to us? What is the gift of love that we have received? It's a radical love where God took us as orphans and adopted us into the kingdom where he took us as wanderers and he grafted us into the vine where he brought us into the kingdom and now we are grafted into the vine of the kingdom of God. This is the kind of love we have received and now God's love is dwelling in us. It is living in us and it is designed to flow through us into the world around us. This is the kind of love that the Father has given to us. It's a radical kind of love. It's unreasonable. It does not make any kind of sense whatsoever, and yet, here we are, sons and daughters. If this is the kind of love that we have received, what then, with what kind of love should we love others? Should we love others? Should we love, you know, the oppressed of this world? Should we love the people who are down and out, the downcast, the downhearted, the, the ones who are under the, the bondage of the oppression of the God of this age who are trapped in his chain? Should, should we love them, should we love them kind of, you know, when it's convenient and when it's easy? Should we, uh, maybe this time I'll do something, or should it be, you know what, God was unreasonable in his love for me. I should then be unreasonable in my love for all. In Isaiah chapter 58, which I didn't read the whole thing and I should have, but you should read it today. God actually describes all people doing these things for the oppressed, for the poor, for the orphans, for the widows, as though you're doing them for your own flesh and blood. Your own flesh, you're doing these things for your own family. God wanted the people of Israel who were highly familial in their family-minded way of living life to think of the foreigners and the orphans and the widows who would be outcasts to think of them as their own flesh and blood. And should we not then think of all humans as our own flesh and blood? And if your own flesh and blood, if your own family was out, lost, wandering, struggling under the bondage of sin, would you not do whatever you could to reach them? If your own brother or sister was out, caught under sin, would you not do whatever you could to rescue them? This is what we're about as a church. We're joining Jesus in the work of rescuing those who are near to us but far from God. Should we not rescue the oppressed? To decide that some are not deserving of justice and mercy because of their sinful choices is deciding there are some who don't deserve God's love. And if there are some who don't deserve God's love, no one deserves God's love. God doesn't want just the easy justice from us. He wants us to stand in the messiest, hardest trenches. So, what about the homeless, the addicted, and the entitled? Is there not grace for them? What about the ones who have caused others great pain? the abusers of our society, is there not grace for them? What about those who take innocent lives? Is there not grace for them? As if there is not grace for these, there is not grace for us. we're going to join Jesus in this radical work of rescuing those who are near to us but far from God, we're going to have to have people in our lives that need rescuing. We're going to have to have people in our lives somehow who are near to us but are far from God. That's dangerous. That's risky. Someone just texted in. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. Last week we talked about this, that the righteous God put on the sinfulness of man so that sinful man could put on the righteousness of God. Today we said that the one who deserved vindication put on condemnation so that those who deserve condemnation could receive vindication. Jesus taught us in in his word that, that we're supposed to love our neighbor's as ourselves well then who is my neighbor that's next week I know this is is a challenging message I understand that it's challenging to me but I hope we can hear God's heart in it because God's heart in it for the oppressed is God's heart for us too. God wants to rescue people who are actually in danger of losing everything, who, who are, if they continue in their ways, going to face the, the eternity of separation from God. As we've talked about over the last several weeks now, that God did not design us for separation. He designed us for relationship. That from the beginning, that was how he created us. And ever since then, he has been working to build out the plan of redemption that leads us to a point in the end where we are now eternally in relationship with God. That is what eternity is. And, and if we are going to be truly God's children, and we are going to be God's disciples, if we're going to follow after Jesus Christ, then we must allow the truth of God's word to change our hearts so that we understand that those around us, no matter what their condition, no matter where we are and what we're surrounded with, that God has a heart for them just like he had a heart for us. And as God sent Jesus Christ to die for us, he sent Jesus Christ to die for them. And if Jesus Christ died for them, does that not require us to sacrifice our own comfort and our own selves and our own whatever so that we can get into the muck and the mire and join Jesus in the work of rescuing those who are trapped by the, by the chain? Of this life. Jesus went to great extremes to secure his children. And we need to allow Jesus to change the way we see. We need to allow the work of Christ to come into our lives and to come into our minds and to come into our hearts and to come into our spirits and our souls and from the inside out transform the way that we actually look upon this world and stop seeing the world through our own judgmental and condemnation-minded eyes and start to see it with God's justice. This is the kind of life that we're praying for through the people of this church, that we already know that this exists in a lot of forms and a lot of hearts and a lot of lives day in and day out. We want to be radically minded in this way that, that the people who this world has given up on find Christ through us and that they go out and become advocates themselves and champion the cause of the orphans and the widows and the, those who are in bondage. And wouldn't that be amazing if that was what this place looked like. Wouldn't it be amazing if that is the norm around here? I mean, if that was just the normal, average, weekly experience, that we had as a regular ongoing part of our church, people who are very far from God, and because of the work that we are doing, faithfully doing, living out this six day life outside of here on a Monday through Saturday basis, that because we're going out and we're getting dirty and we're building relationships with those who the world has given up on, that we start to actually build bridges into their lives, and they are through Christ in us, drawn to Christ in this place, and they come and they gather here and they hear the radical redemption message of Jesus Christ and it changes their lives forever and then God will then use them to go out into the world, into their relationships, into the lives of people who are also under the same bondage and under the same change as they were and go out and bring them back into the home of Jesus Christ and bring them back into the family that they were designed for and bring them back into the kingdom and to a seat at the table where God really wanted them all along. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was just the normal, regular, ongoing weekly practice of 6 Eight Church? Let's do that. It's not going to be easy. I can guarantee you that we won't want to do it unless God changes our wants. Let's stand together. your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you're like me, and you would say, I've been judging. If you would say, I've been condemning. If you would say... I've been deciding who gets God's grace and who doesn't. And you want to repent of that. Do You want to let God change your mind and then change your behavior, your actions, your attitudes from this point forward. If you would say that's you, would you raise your hand? My hand is up this morning. I've had that attitude. Many hands. You can put your hands down. I encourage you, you don't have to pray this out loud, but pray this prayer in your heart, if you will. Heavenly Father, would you forgive me for I have sinned against you. Forgive me for condemning and judging people made in your image. Forgive me for the ways in my heart and in my life I have decided people do not deserve your grace and have not been willing to take it to them even when you've prompted and called. And now that we have received your forgiveness, Father, I pray in this moment that you replace any guilt that we had with repentance and that repentance would lead us to a life-changing relationship with you and that through that life-changing eternally eternity-changing relationship we have with you, you would well up within us, Father, I pray, a desire to love radically everyone we encounter. Father, I pray that you empower us in this moment by the power of the Holy Spirit who sees that broken life standing on the street corner, who sees that broken life in a tent under the freeway, who sees that broken life wandering around mindless, Controlled by substances, who sees that broken life, who has caused great harm by abusing and taking advantage of others, who, who through the power of God's grace in us overwhelms in us our desire to condemn and to judge, and sees that life through God's eyes. And I pray, Father, as you give us the eyes to see, that you also give us the heart, give us the hands. Give us the desire, give us the feet to move and intervene in whatever way you give us to intervene, to just be faithful. when you prompt us, when you prod us, when you call us, to just be faithful to what you tell us to do. It may not seem that extreme in the moment, but Father, we know that you are moving your believers all across this area, all throughout Hazeldale, all throughout Vancouver, all throughout Portland, all throughout the Northwest, that you are moving your believers to interact with those who are lost, who are wanderers, who are hopeless, And that if we all just are obedient to that call that you've put on our lives, that you will send many believers across the paths of many wanderers and that you will use each and every one of us to draw them a little bit more into relationship with you and that someday, even though we may not ever know it here on this earth, we know that because we were just faithful with that one little thing you gave us to do, that in eternity there will be a face that is standing there because many of us were faithful in the process of what you had given for that person to bring them into the kingdom. Father, I pray for us as a church, I pray, Father, and this week through last week and the weeks ahead, I pray, Father, that you reignite the 6-8 vision in our hearts, that this thing that over the last five years maybe has just kind of become rote and routine, that we've gotten used to the idea and we're not really passionate about it anymore, I pray, Father, that you would stir our souls with the passion of the command that you've given us that transcends Old and New Testament, the the one that you gave in the Old Testament and the one that we saw lived out in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, this global truth that you've given to us to guide us as a church, as your people here, Father, I pray that you would stir that up in us and that that we would find ourselves being drawn once again to the idea of doing justice even when it's not convenient, of doing justice even when it costs something of us, of doing justice even when the requirement seems to exceed our own abilities in the moment, would find ourselves doing justice simply because you have stirred it up in us and we know that you will provide for us what you want of us to be able to do that so that you might draw more people into your kingdom. Stir that up in us, Father, and I pray put the vision and the picture in our minds of every human we encounter. That as we see them, as we look into their eyes and we see In their eyes, a void of life. As we look into their eyes and we see desperation. As we look into the eyes of the widow who is without hope, as we look into the eyes of the orphan who is without a parent, as we look into the eyes of the foreigner who doesn't know what's going to happen in the right here and now, as we Look into the eyes of the homeless. That you would give us your eternal perspective. Help us to see in their eyes their desperation. Help us to see in their eyes that that they are without hope and that you have put us in their path so that we could shine the light of hope in their lives. not from a position of pride or arrogance, not from a position of above looking down, but as equals, for we are all made in your image. And Father, give us a righteous burden that they may come into the kingdom of God, that they may be redeemed, that they may be rescued, that they may be restored. may all of this be for your glory. I pray, Father, for building up your kingdom. I pray, Father, that this would be your kingdom come on this earth through our lives in this week ahead that that as your will is done in heaven, it would be done in the same way through our lives in this week ahead of us. And that this heaven-minded, eternally minded, God-minded vision of all of the wanderers on this earth would come to fruition in our minds and we would see it with our eyes and that you would change the way we see every human on this planet from the poorest to the richest and that you would help us to see them through your eyes that they may be rescued and redeemed and restored as sons and daughters of the Most High God. In Jesus' name.